The following episode contains major plot points of movies. A spoiler warning is advised. This episode also contains topics that may be disturbing for some viewers, so viewer discretion is also advised. Hi everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Abbey Normal Podcast. I am your host, Colin. And I am Aaliyah. I don't know why Colin is talking like that. I don't know what you're talking about. And to- are you supposed to do, are you doing like some sort of accent? No. Then why are you talking like that? No, that's just my voice. But anyway, so today we have a special episode for you. You have anything you want to say? I did have an idea for an interesting like intro segment. So sometimes what I do when I'm scrolling through social media like Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, <clears throat> sometimes I'll see things that I feel like are important to talk about on the podcast or just things in general that I think are interesting to talk about. Yeah. And I save them, but I always forget to bring them up during the podcast. So Why do you I forget? Thought, I don't know. I just save them and forget about them. Like that one infomercial. Remember that infomercial? It was like a kitchen appliance. It's like you set it and forget it. <laughs> yes, that? I do. Yes. That That's pretty what funny. this is. Okay. It's one of those moments. Um, but I have some here that I'm going to bring up. Is there anything you want to talk about before we get into the topic of our conversation? The topic in demand here? Um, no, other than I've been watching lots of fun, spooky stuff. Like, Mm -hmm. constantly, every day. Like I said in the last episode, that there has been nothing but really, really good shit that's going on in a lot of streaming services. And stuff I haven't seen in a while. Like, it's back. And also, I am so happy that in the top five of Max movies on HBO Max of people been watching, Lost Boys is number five in top in top ten watches. Mm-hmm. And I can see why. Because it's a fucking classic. And if you all know me very well, as you do, to- uh, not Top Gun, Lost Boys mm-hmm. is one of my favorite vampire movies. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, it was so funny. I was just talking to an older gentleman today. I think he was like in his 50s or 60s. And he was saying that because he saw my uh, Boris Karloff Frankenstein tattoo. And he was just like, I love horror stuff. And he's like, I love punk rock stuff also that Mm -hmm. I grew up listening to. And I was telling him about my band, Grease Creepers. And then he was telling me one of his favorite bands that he liked that his son got him into. They're not so punk rock, but it's Ice Nine Kills. Oh, yeah. We yeah. like Ice Nine Kills. Yeah, the older gentleman, he lo- he was like, I've seen them three times already. Uh-huh. They're amazing. Sorry, that was my phone. Yeah, and, he's, uh, and he said, like, he's old enough to see bands that he saw from the 80s. Like, he saw freaking Misfits mm-hmm. when they were in their prime. And I'm like, yeah. that's awesome. So, so I found some things. One of them is an old news. I think you and I talked about this last month. But I have a thing here from All About Cinema page on Facebook. Talk to Me has surpassed Hereditary to become the highest grossing A24 horror movie ever at the domestic box office. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. It was not only, like, highly marketed, but a lot of people, like, when it first came out, especially um, in private showings, like, before its initial release, a lot of critics were saying it was really good and exceeded expectations, so that's nice. That's good. Mm Mm-hmm. That's awesome. There is another one, and it's a post... Oh, actually, it's it's a article from Ranker.com that vote on everything uh, blog. The most disturbing deaths in the Saw franchise. Now, like I said, we talked about Saw franchise and their traps as a whole. 
But what do you think about this? You and I have ranked our favorites. Yeah. What do I think of it? Like mm-hmm. what? Being talked dirty. What? Talk dirty to me? No, talk to me. Being like the number one. Yeah. Talk. Well, that's just talk to me. I'm talking about saw. Oh. Yeah, I've moved on from talk to me. We haven't even watched talk to me yet. Anyway. Okay. No. So this one covers the top most disturbing depths in the Saw franchise. And number one is the unwinnable rib spreader from Saw 3. Ah. Also known as like the, was it like the angel trap? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, that's the one where uh, Dina Meyer, Dina Meyer got, that was number one? That's number one. Oh, shit. Also from Saw 3, number two is the rack trap. Ah, okay. Yep, you remember that one where yeah. the guy is uh, strapped to this contraption that twists all of his limbs and his head around? I do remember. Oh my god, that shit was dangerous. Yep. Fuck. Uh, from Saw 7, the brazen bull, mm. also known as the furnace trap. This is when Bobby Deegan makes it to the end, has to recreate the supposed trap that he survived when he was supposedly a jigsaw survivor. Mm. That never happened. As we all know by now, he failed this test, and because he failed it, his wife suffered a death much more Worse. excruciating. Yeah. Oh God. So a brazen bull statue—it's not really a statue, but like this metal contraption builds up around her, and it cooks her, kind of like a brazen bull. Yeah. Very messed up. Uh, I can see trap. that. Yeah. Another one from Saw Seven is the reverse spare trap. This is also seen in the first Saw movie yep. and in a couple other Saw sequels. Yeah. But Amanda Young and Jill Tuck are two female victims who have worn the Did reverse. they survive it or no? Amanda did, but Jill didn't. And it's only because Mark Hoffman literally tied her hands to the chair, so she had no choice but to wait for the clock to she, count down. She had no choice. Yeah. Fuck. And yeah, it's, she, I think she's the only person to die from the reverse bear trap. Yeah. Yeah. Number five, also from Saw 7, is the garage trap with the late Chester Bennington being one of the victims. Oh, shit. There are at least, I think, four victims total. One in front of the car, one behind the car, one underneath the car, and one in the car. So they all died at the same time? Not at the same time. One... I, I don't even know how I can go into it without... Because we, we've talked about this one on, when we did the Saw franchise recap. Yeah, yeah, we did. I so, remember that. Oh yeah. God. Was that it's, Saw 7 for real? Yeah, that's Saw 7. Fuck. Another one from Saw 3 is the classroom trap. Hmm. That's, that's one of the flashbacks. But it's this guy with all the hooks stuck to his body and he had to rip them all out. Yo. Oh, and the only one he sucks. couldn't get out was the one through his jaw. Which you can't do, by that's, the way. That's impossible, yeah. Yeah. So that's number six. Number seven is the hydro hydrofluoric acid injection from Saw 6. Saw 6 is my favorite of the Saw movies. Yeah. And it's the one where William Easton finally makes it to the end of all of his tests. And then he's his life is now being tested by the widow and son of one of his clients who he denied health insurance to because he had a heart condition. Oh, wow. Yes. So the wife couldn't do it, so the son pulled the lever, and it caused William Easton to die from hydrofluoric acid. Shit. Yeah, it's not not great. 
That sucks. Number eight is the Death Mask, also known as the Venus Flytrap from Saw 2. This is actually where we start to see Dr. Lawrence Gordon's handiwork in the Saw traps. Because in this one, the Saw, the key to the mask is behind his eye. Oh, yeah, so the, I hated the that. The victim had to take out his own eye just to get the key, and he didn't do it in time. I hated that one. Can I say what what was my least favorite, like, the one that really I hated that was so cringy? Well, I've got two more. Ah. Can I do two more, and then you can tell me your least favorite? Fine. So number nine is the furnace trap from Saw 2. This is in the gas house in the basement, and I think it's Opie or Obi. <laughs> Obi has to climb into the furnace to get two syringes that have the antidotes i like the, op better but yeah no well it's he has to climb into the furnace to get the two syringes that contain the antidotes to the nerve agent gas that's being admitted into the house yeah that's what's causing these people to slowly die so that's number nine and then number 10 is the circular saw and the shotgun collar from saw three so like in saw three doctor or nurse lynn I can't remember what her name was. Lynn Denlin. She was Jeff Denlin's wife, remember? She mm-hmm. she had to keep John Kramer alive long enough to essentially try to prolong his life, even though he was getting close to death. Yeah. As long as his heart monitor still showed that he was alive, the shotgun collar around her neck wouldn't go off, uh, which okay. would have resulted in her death. True. But so that's that's the that's the that's the list. So All what right. was what were you saying? The one, I don't think it was like it had her die or in her death or anything, but it was kind of like she was set up in a pit and it was in the second movie with all those needles. Oh, the the needle pit from yeah, the Saw 2. needle pit. Yeah, yeah, from Saw 2. So literally, but I hated that needle pit scene, especially when she's suffering, swimming through those needles. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. That's kind of like my worst nightmare is to be in a pit full of needles. Yeah. Ugh. And then I have especially one more. Dirty. And then I have one more to share before we get into the topic of our conversation today. And this has something to do with the SAG after strikes. So this is important. So from an article from Variety on their website, this was pu- published on October 11th of 2023. So about three, actually two days ago as of this recording. Uh, SAG AFTRA alleges, quote, bullying tactics as studios suspend negotiations. So according to the article, talks between SAG-AFTRA and the major studios have broken down as the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers said Wednesday that the gap between the sides is too great. In a statement to members after midnight, the union accused the studios of engaging in bullying tactics and said that the studios have walked away from the bargaining table after refusing to counter the union's latest offer. The union expressed, quote, profound disappointment with the latest development and urged members to show up at the picket lines to express their solidarity. The key stumbling block is a union proposal to share in streaming revenue, which the AMPTP says would cost $800 million a year. sag after said that figure was exaggerated by 60% and that its proposal would cost the streaming platforms $0.57 cents per subscriber per year. We have negotiated with them in good faith, despite the fact that last week they presented an offer that was shockingly worth less than they proposed before the strike began, SAG-AFTRA told the membership. 
These companies refuse to protect performers from being replaced by AI. They refuse to increase your wages to keep up with inflation, and they refuse to share a tiny portion of the immense revenue your work generates for them. So SAG-AFTRA wants a share of streaming revenue for all union-covered shows, both made for streaming and films and TV shows licensed from other platforms, which will go well beyond the success-based bonus won by the Writers Guild of America. So like we said, last the week before, they finally ended the writer's strike. The AMPTP was able to come to the table and meet all the demands that the writers wanted to ensure their suge- that their jobs would be secured. And yeah. we still, this is the latest thing we've heard about the writer or the actor strike. Because like I said, actor strike is not over, and this is only going to prolong it even more if the AMPTP doesn't come to a decision soon. Yeah. But what do you think? Well, it just sucks. Yeah. You, know, you would think that they would kind of they would negotiate on things and everything, but sadly, it doesn't work out like that in the favor. It's kind of like same with uh, the nurses' strike. Also, like they're kind of like demanding more money, especially with all the hours and work that they do and stuff. And the writers, well, not the writers. Is this more of the actors, right? Mm-hmm. The actors they do so much for their roles and for their directors and the companies and everything that they should deserve more cash than they do. Right. So that's why I do feel sad for everyone, not only in just movies and Hollywood, but also are the hardest workers, especially at hospitals. Like they're trying right. to get everything that they can that to survive. Right. And yet higher companies are being stingy by not giving what they what those people deserve. Right. And we gotta remember too and I don't know if this applies to writers, but I know that actors, directors, and producers, and people who work on cast and crew are oftentimes location-based. So sometimes they do perform in studios, but other times they'll have to go to locations to shoot their movies. Especially if you go somewhere far away. Exactly. Like, for example, we're going to be covering Midsummer again in this week's episode. Mm-hmm. And they shot most of their locations either between Utah... And Budapest. So there's a lot of location shooting that happens with movies. So, like I said, everybody who works on it has to go to these locations. They have to be on site and present to ensure that the shots go smoothly. You know, Mm. and everything goes according to plan. Because you're on a schedule, you're on a budget, and you're on a time crunch. So you need to get all of your shots and all of your post-production stuff handed in on time before it's due to release. So I guess when they went to Switzerland in the movie? Sweden. Sweden. So I guess when they went to Sweden, those were probably the shots that they had in Budapest. Yeah, this movie was never shot in Sweden. It was all shot in either Budapest or Utah. And... Probably in the beginning of the movie when they were back at home where they live at originally and everything. That was probably Utah. So from what I learned in my research, I did a little bit more research this time with Midsommar. But in Midsommar, some of the shots were they were like back at, like you said, back at home. Danny's dorm room scenes were shot in Brooklyn, New oh. York City. And Christian and his friends' bar scenes and their apartment scenes were shot in Utah. And then when they would go to Sweden for the festivities, they were actually being shot in Budapest. And I guess it's because Sweden has a lot more stricter schedule, like shooting schedules than other countries, where they were only require you to shoot for about eight hours a day. 
Ah. Yeah, you can't do like all day and all night shooting like so, some. So yeah, so over Budapest is a little bit longer. Budapest has a little bit more leniency. Yeah. So there's that. But again, it, I feel like that's only fair considering the fact that just like all production companies, even made for TV, television, and movies, you'd have to go to locations to just to shoot a movie or a mm. show. Okay. And those things are not always easy for a lot of people to do. And they would probably have to pay for it themselves. It's not like the studio pays for everybody's plane tickets to fly out and do their job. Is there anything you want to say before we get into the review? Um, I think we cover what mostly what we were talking about. Yeah, I think this is a nice little intro yeah. to segue before we get into our main topic. I will probably do more of these because I know, like I said, I, I save a lot of stuff on my social media accounts. So there's always more stuff for me to talk about before we dive into the episode. So... Like we said, we're going to be covering Midsommar, and we haven't talked about this movie like in full length since July of 2021. So it's been a little over two years. And since that time, I have re Oh, that's the last time we, were, we, we discussed it two yes. years ago? Two and oh. a half years ago. Oh, wow. Yes. So I've watched it a couple more times since then, and I got to say right off the bat, I'm not saying that watching it more has made me love it more. I still find it incredibly annoying. But I do want to point out that a lot of people do like this movie. I'm not shaming anybody who does. I like that this movie. Is, you like this movie. I know a lot of other people who love this movie. And that's if that's your preference, that's fine. Mm. I'm not saying you have to hate it like I do. But for me, the movie just doesn't quite hit it the way that other movies have you're, in the past. You're just like, it doesn't really affect you. Like, it doesn't really have any significance. Or It doesn't really hold much of a significance for me, but there are things about it. Like I said, when I rewatched it, there were more things about it that I saw that I appreciated a little bit more. Yeah. But I do want to point out one more thing. And I, I haven't always been good with this because I always plug these you know, warnings and the intros of most of our stuff. And I always... Uh, trigger mark... warnings. Yeah. yeah. So I always make sure that whether it's a movie review or a game or anything, these episodes are always listed as explicit because we never know how the conversations are going to derail and if we're ever going to touch touchy subjects along the way. I should be doing better. I apologize if I haven't been doing my best, but I always try to make an effort. So when talking about Midsummer. Or any movie in general, for that matter. There's always going to be movies that touch on sensitive subjects that might be triggering for some audiences. For example, with Midsommar, it's going to talk about grief. It's going to talk about familial loss. It's going to talk about emotional manipulation. It's going to talk about suicide. And it's going to talk about cult tactics and cult followings and stuff. So with that being said, just know that this is going to be a very trigger and spoiler-based episode. So are you ready to get into the review? Yeah, let's get into this. Okay, so I don't remember much from our last review when we did Midsommar, but I know that in our earliest episodes, the format was very disorganized. And Mm -hmm. I don't remember if I was just flying off the cuff and reciting the entire plot verbatim from memory or if I had my notes, I don't know if we were that far in advance with our organization skills. So I'm going to stick to the format we've been using for the past, I'd say, year now. Because that's, that's all I can remember from the last time 
that we did this review. Yeah, because you were a little all over the place in the last time we did this. So, you yeah. know, it'd be nice to little be a little more organized for this one. Right. So, I know we kind of have the same intro. The movie Midsommar was released on July 3rd of 2019 and has a runtime of an 2 hours and 28 minutes and was written and directed by Ari Aster. It was produced by A24 and Nordisk Films. Nordisk Films is a Swedish production company. Mm-hmm. And the film was initially pitched to Ari Aster as a standard slasher film set among Swedish cults. He initially rejected the idea as he felt that it, quote, had no way into the story. While elements of the original concept remained in the final product, the finished film focuses on a deteriorating relationship inspired by a difficult breakup experienced by Aster himself. And he seems to do this a lot with some of his movies, mm-hmm. and especially in Midsommar. There's a couple of uh, fun facts in here yeah. where he incorporates more of his life and his personal experiences into the plots of this movie. I think that's what makes it a more interesting movie, that you can really base a lot of like the movie stuff on your like real life. Yeah, I mean, it makes it a little bit more personal yeah. from a director's standpoint because you're sharing your experiences with the audience. Kind of like in Green Room. Mm-hmm. Like the director from Green Room did the same thing where he took his experiences from the music scene in Portland, Oregon and applied them into this movie. Yeah. So the movie stars Florence Pugh as Danny Arder, Jack Rayner as Christian... Wilhelm Blomgren as Pele, William Jackson Harper as Josh, and Will Poulter as Mark. He's the the big dickhead. He is. I first saw him in We're the Millers. Mm -hmm. That's the first movie I've ever seen this kid in. I never watched the Divergent series or... I I remember him in that, yeah. I think he was also in the recent Blade Runner movies. Yeah, wasn't he in Shameless? No, he wasn't. I feel like he would have been in that show. He would have been, although I might not be thinking of Blade Runner. I might be thinking of Maze Runner instead. No, Maze Runner, not Blade Runner. Yeah. Not Blade Runner. That's what I'm saying. There's too many, like, movie titles with the word runner in it, and it just gets me confused. Mm -hmm. Several details in the movie are depictions of actual Swedish folk customs and old beliefs. The Midsummer Night was considered one of the most magical nights of the year in older Swedish culture. A night when music and supernatural beings can more easily affect humans. Therefore, this night is connected to many different customs and traditions. Originally intended to protect yourself, your family, your livestock, etc. from dark magic or to make use of of the good magic. Picking flowers while walking backwards is a local variation on a very common midsummer tradition. You pick about six or seven different kinds of flowers while following specific rules. The rules can vary in different parts of the country. Having to walk backwards is a common rule, as is having to cross seven fences and having to stay quiet during the whole procedure. The flowers are then placed under your pillow, and during the night, you supposedly dream about your future husband. Eating a heavily salted herring, starting from the tail, Mm -hmm. fills the same purpose as picking flowers. That's fucking gross. It's gross, but all of these things are applied into the movie, like picking flowers while walking backwards. There's a clip where they, they're about to have dinner, and Mark notices the girls are doing that. <clears throat> and he makes a snarky comment about it, but that's something that they incorporated. What did she say again? What did he say again that was snarky? I think he says something to the effect of, should somebody tell him that they're walking weird? 
Um, I don't know. Something along those lines. Well, they but don't Danny, know the tradition. Danny yeah. did the same thing and picked Christian flowers. Oh. And, yeah, a lot of the concepts. And even, like, after she wins the May Queen dance competition. Which she did she's, amazing at. She's encouraged to eat a salted herring starting at the tail. Ooh. Yeah. Which, again, is part of the tradition. Yeah. It's weird that she kissed Pele later in the movie. Mm-mm. First of all, Pele kissed her. Pele. And she was caught off guard by this. I thought that was interesting, too. Mm-hmm. But there are other things about, like, the, the first part of that paragraph where the night is considered one of the most magical nights of the year. The night is connected to many different customs and traditions. And a night when magic and supernatural beings could more easily affect humans. I feel like the Maya character, the little redhead girl. I don't want to say little redhead girl, make it make this whole part of the plot really creepy. But Maya is a girl who's part of the commune who has it out for Christian. Not in like a bad, well, it is a bad way. Mm-hmm. When you think about it on paper, it's a bad way. But she sees Christian as a potential mating partner to have children with. Yeah. She doesn't care about him romantically, but she tries to seduce him so he can want to have sex with her to get her impregnated. But she does these little things where she makes these little love ruin stones and meat pies with her pubic hair in it and then all this stuff. So it's these little things that she does that's part of her culture that tries to use that little supernatural magical side of Midsommar to get Christian to fuck her. Mm -hmm. It's a very weird plot of the movie. Very, very weird. But what do you think? I mean... Because you, you and I have watched this movie a few times since our first review. Mm-hmm. How did you feel about it each time you watched it? I simply to describe, yes, it is intense. It's emotional as fuck. Yeah. But it does get scary at times, and it does get very emotional, especially with uh, Danny yeah. dealing with the loss that she did. And some of the things that she's doing in this movie, I feel like, especially with her grieving process, are wrong. Sometimes she's pushing herself to move along too quickly, and that's... I had a hard time with that. When I was grieving, and I'm still grieving after losing my dad, I didn't grieve that well because I didn't know how to grieve. So instead, what I did best was just went back to work right away because I needed to make money and I needed like really kind of like get back on, you know, trying to get things normal. Yeah. But the problem is, is that it's never going to be normal. Right. Especially when you lose someone and you lose someone, it's sticking with you. Yeah, and especially with Danny's situation, like, her her loss is, like, a huge magnitude. She lost her entire family in one night, mm-hmm. which is something you never usually expect to happen. And when it, it happens, it's devastating. But I think the way she grieves is, it's normal compared to what we talked about in Hereditary, right? Mm-hmm. The, the way the family in Hereditary grieved a lot more differently, individually, especially with each family member. And then with this one, you have just Danny and her grieving process over her familial loss. And it's a powerful, like you said, an emotional movie because a lot of what this movie conveys is emotional scenes. And I think another thing that's important too when it comes to emotion is knowing that that is the whole cult's, like the cult in this movie, Mm -hmm. their whole belief system is based on feelings of different emotions and even when we watch each of these individual like rituals take place Mm -hmm. the people surrounding the rituals all share the emotions that the the people focused on the rituals are feeling 
And the thing with I had interest with this movie also is kind of like the buildup mm-hmm. and the things within the buildup that were like the forthcoming. Yeah. Like especially with when it comes to pictures, um, drawings, things in the room, kind of foretelling what's going to happen in the next scene. Yeah, there's a lot of foreshadowing and... There's two things I want to point out about this before we get into the plot. But the foreshadowing thing, it's heavily implied throughout the movie. And it reminds me of something that a friend of ours said when we were talking about Nope. After we watched the movie Nope, it was about a year ago at this point. It's been a year almost since Nope came out. Isn't Is that it really? Weird? Yeah. I thought it was two, but it has been a year. Yeah, it's been a year. Okay, fine. So when Nope came out, Doesn't and feel like it. we were talking about it with a friend, and they said that... One of the reasons why they didn't like Nope is because they felt like Jordan Peele, he kept peppering in these moments that reminded the audience what the theme of the movie was about. And I get it. When you have a director who constantly has to remind the audience this is what is happening, it makes you feel a little stupid, especially if you don't realize it right away what the theme is. But mm-hmm. you can tell from Nope what the theme is about. So, like, the, chim- I don't, I don't the know. chimpanzee in the TV show, the horses with Daniel Kalula's character, and Jean Jacket, the creature in the movie. The whole, they're, each, each of these components represent the theme of the movie Nope, which is humanity using organic creatures or creatures of nature as exploit for for exploitive purposes Mm -hmm. and i get that i got that like right from like the after the scene where they do the safety test speech at the studio i got that but with ari aster what i hate about this is the 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 repetitive use of foreshadowing to tell you what's going to happen before it even happens because before each of these rituals we get a close-up shot of some of these paintings that are on the walls of these huts to, to let us know what's about to happen. Even after Danny loses her parents and it's been some time and we're in spring or summer now, and we get that shot of her laying in bed and there's that big picture of the girl with the crown in front of a brown bear. Like, that's a huge foreshadowing imagery of what's going to happen at the end, Right? Mm-hmm. And I feel like that that gives away the whole ending. Like, why would you put that there? And then, like I said, it's peppered like that throughout the entirety of the movie. Like, you keep reminding people, like, hey, hey, this is what's going to happen at the end. So prepare yourselves. Like, I don't like that. I like it when foreshadowing moments happen so subtly that you almost don't notice it the first time. And there are movies that do that. But I like it when foreshadowing is subtle. And not so much, like, in your face. Yeah. And then another thing I wanted to get into before I get into the plot. I may have said the last time we did this review that it was rumored that the writers of the movie used cult tactics in the writing of the movie to convince the audience that the ending that we got was a good-for-her moment. I never found anything to confirm that in my research notes. So at that point, that little tidbit is... Alleged. Not confirmed, it's not denied, it's not real, but it's alleged. Anyway, even if it was true, I still find that to be icky. You know what I mean? Yeah. How do you feel about that? If 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 what was said allegedly did happen. Um, I mean, did it work? 
Well, how did you feel about the ending? I feel like she was free. What I felt like when I saw her, her, like, I mean, she was happy, but in weird ways. And just in that moment right there, I feel like she was kind of confused and kind of at the same time also relieved and also kind of felt like a little bit of a, not redemption. I just feel like she's like a starting over. Yeah. And that's, I feel like that's the point I was seeing with her is that after all this, she doesn't have any family. She, her boyfriend just <laughs> died being a bear. Mm-hmm. Literally, I wouldn't, yeah, it's just ridiculous. And then, like, literally now she has, like, this new family that loves her and that wants to be with her and support her and everything. She could start over. She doesn't, like, need to go back to where she lived at. She could just start over and do whatever. So what you're saying is the ending that we got was definitely a good for her moment. I don't know if it's a good for her moment, but it's just like for her to start over moment. Because see, that's the thing. And and there are many, many cult documentaries that talk about these tactics. But people who work with cults or organized cults, they look for a certain type of person that can be easily influenced and manipulated into agreeing to do whatever things the cult leader or person or member wants them to do. Sounds like any and organized I feel religion. Yeah, and I feel like the way that they did it in this movie, again, this is all allegedly, if this is true and they used cult tactics in the writing to convince the audience what they wanted us to think, that's pretty fucked up. Because we all know now that cults are a thing, they do happen, they still happen to this day. Some of them ended terribly with people, real people, dying and I don't think that that is something that I would want to commend so I don't again it's all alleged I couldn't confirm any of that being true if it is I think it's pretty fucked up but that's just me so I'm gonna try to keep my energy low I don't want to explode too high in the beginning and then fizzle out halfway through so I'll try to just keep it at a steady medium yeah Alright? And, and if I have to if I have to like calm you down, I will. Okay. So to get into the plot, college student Danny Arder is grieving the loss of her family after her sister Terry committed murder suicide. This loss further strains Danny's relationship with her emotionally distant slash narcissistic boyfriend, Christian, who is also attending school or college for anthropology. Six months after the tragedy, she learns that Christian, with his friends Mark and Josh, have been invited by their Swedish friend Pele to attend a midsummer festival at his ancestral commune. The festival occurs only once every 90 years, which I find very weird. It's such a long period of time. And they finally wait for that moment. Yep. And Josh intends to write his thesis on European midsummer festivities. Danny is surprised by this as Christian had not discussed the trip with her. He had intended to break up with Danny before her family tragedy happened, but he reluctantly invites her along after an argument. Now, I'm going to try to keep this as brief as possible. The thing that bothered me about the first time watching this movie, and it still bothers me when I watch it every single time. I've watched this movie four times, and every time this part of the movie bothers me because, first of all, Danny is a psychology major, and she's been with Christian now for four years. I don't know if they met prior to going to college together or if they met while they started college together. I don't know. 
But you mean to tell me that a person who's taking psychology can't recognize when her boyfriend is being a narcissistic and emotionally manipulative asshole? Well, maybe she's still learning. Still, I'm going to go on. And then the thing that also bothers me, I just want to break the, the scenes down a little bit because when we first see Danny, she's trying to call her parents. They don't respond. She leaves a voicemail, asks if they're doing okay. She got a message from Terry, made her a little worried. And she can't doesn't hear back from her sister, who she's trying to reach out through instant messaging, and she's not responding. And she goes on her phone, and we see that she attempts... To, like, call Christian, but she hesitates. And knowing what we know now about her, we can assume that the reason why she hesitates is because she doesn't want to feel like she's burdening Christian with her emotional issues. Like, all her baggage. Right. And I can understand that. But another part of me wonders, too, did she hesitate because she knew how the conversation was going to go? Yeah. Because you can hear in the way that she talks whenever he... Like, for, he goes through the normal motions of a conversation. Like, hi, what's going on? How are you doing? And she says, oh, I'm doing okay. I'm just wondering what you were doing tonight. And he's like, well, I'm going out with the guys. And he, she hears Mark going, hi, Danny. Hi, Danny. And he's like, Mark says hi. And she's like, hi, Mark. And then there's a pause. And he says, so how's the sister situation? And she's trying not to cry, oh, which God. you can tell on her face. And that's what I love about Florence Pugh. She's very, very much an emotional actress, and I applaud her for that in her career. So you can tell she's trying not to break down on the phone, but she says, well, I haven't heard from her, and I tried calling my parents, but they didn't answer, so now I'm starting to get a little nervous. And then when he starts to start putting her down for being worried about her sister, who has bipolar disorder, and apparently she goes through this process every once in a while where she becomes emotionally distressed and then Danny rushes to her side to help her get through this process with her family and he starts to kind of put her down for it and she says well she's my sister you know I can't just not do anything I can't just not help her and he says yeah but it's taking a toll out of you and you just do this to yourself all the time and rather than continue to defend herself, she folds and says, yes, yes, thank you. I understand. I appreciate and I'm lucky to have you in my life. Like she, like it feels like she's caving because again, she's putting her emotional needs aside to deflect getting into an argument with this guy. Mm-hmm. And so the conversation comes to an end and then she calls her friend and she even says to her friend, I feel like he's going to break up with me. And then her friend says, confront him. If you feel like this is going, if this is happening, you should be able to say something to him. Exactly. And you should. In a relationship, communication is key. Mm -hmm. Kyle and I have been together for nine years and it's mostly been based on communication. You know, like if there's things in our relationship that neither one of us is okay with, we have to be able to communicate with each other and say, look, in order for this relationship to continue and flourish... We need to be able to talk about what's bothering us, and we need to be able to discuss it and find a way to get through it. You took in what I said when we first dated. I was like, look, if we're going to be together, I want you to be totally honest with me. Right. Because that's what I want. And that's what people should do more in a relationship is to be honest with each other, whether it's good or bad. Right. 
Yeah. And I don't know at this point if Danny wants the relationship to end, but she knows that something is wrong, but she doesn't want to initiate the conversation, which I say, go for it. Worst case scenario, the relationship ends. ends. And if it ends, then it ends. And, and that's you move just on. how. Yeah. It's like they say, it's how the chips fall where they lie. Like, that's just how it goes. Yeah. And then Christian and his fucking friends are at a bar having the exact same conversation with each other. And they're eating pizza. The point is, he's having this conversation. Okay, and I I brought this up before, before we did this recording. But I feel like each of these guy friends represents something in Christian's life. Mark is the person who thinks with his dick. Because he's convincing Christian, if you break up with Danny now, think of all the chicks you could be fucking right now. Honey. What? I got the next one. Let me okay. do this one. Pele. Or mm-hmm. his name? Pele. Pele. Mm-hmm. His heart. Yeah. He's, he's the heart of the group. And Josh is the brains. Yep. Because Josh calls him out for saying, do you think you might be overthinking this to avoid the fact that you haven't come up with a topic for your thesis yet? And this is the thing about... Exactly. Getting your PhD. You have to write a thesis paper on something that's part of your major in order to pass your class. And to graduate. Yeah, to graduate and get your PhD. Josh has already established what he wants to do with his thesis, and Christian hasn't done that yet. Yeah, because he doesn't know what he wants to do, and Josh has already got everything figured out. Right. And just like this relationship with Danny, he doesn't know what he wants. He knows that he's not happy with her. But the thing that he says, and this really pisses me off and made me explode the first time I watched it, but he says to them, what if I break up with her and then decide I want to get back together with her, but she's no longer available? And then that is meant to happen that way. But this is where I say, if you don't want to break up with her, then work on the relationship. Talk to each other. Talk to your partner for Say, hey, what? this is why I'm glad we're not uh, Danny and Christian. This is why I'm glad I'm not Danny or Christian. But or, this is why, if I ever met people like this in real life, I would scream. I like, would, in public. I would be like, you two are fucking nuts. And like, I would drag you away because I don't want any worse happening. But that's what all of, like, all of these red flags. I'm like, this is like the weirdest fucking writing I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. All of these things just don't make any fucking sense. And this is what I don't like about elevated horror sometimes, is that sometimes the writing makes it seem like life is this complicated. And you know what? I've said it before. I'm probably going to say it again a thousand more times. But this is why I say this movie is really pretty much Wicker Man with toxic relationship issues. No, you know what this is? This is... when was the original Wicker Man released? 1978? No, 1973. This is the 1973 Wicker Man combined with the Nicolas Cage Wicker Man. I thought about this after I listened to the Dead Meat podcast cover the original Wicker Man and the remake. Didn't they say that on there? No. They, no? They didn't say that. I just came up with... Because I'm not going to get into it. That's a whole other conversation for a no, whole other episode. Yeah, honey, honey. But the point is... <laughs> This is the weirdest fucking writing I've ever seen. Life can be hard. Life can be challenging. But life is never this complex. And when it comes to relationships, if your relationship is this complex to the point where it's causing you emotional and mental distress, it's not worth it. And another part of the beginning that I have a problem with 
even if all this, all these things didn't happen with Danny, with her family, Christian still should have ended the relationship. Pretty much. Right. But he didn't. Even if he wasn't happy, because that's another thing. A guy like Christian doesn't ever want to be perceived as a bad guy. And there's more instances like this throughout the plot where he gets called out for being a douchebag and a narcissist and he gets defensive. He doesn't want to be perceived as a bad guy. But he is. So what guy would break up with his girlfriend after she just went through a major loss? Mm -hmm. I understand that. And you, yeah, you could be the douchebag if you decided to dip now when she's at a real low point in her life. Yeah. But it would be in her best interest if you left her alone. Allow her time to grieve on her own. Let her heal by herself. She's got friends. She's got that one friend she talked to on the phone. I want to know whatever happened to her. Anyway, my point is, the intro to this movie really pissed me off. And speaking of foreshadowing that we mentioned probably like 20 minutes ago, but Danny's surname is Ardor, and it's Latin for flame. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's funny because as we were talking about this yesterday, mm-hmm. went to my MRI appointment, my doctor, who is actually pretty much French, he said to me that my name, Born and Borne, which means stubborn. <laughs> oh, yeah. You got a quick French lesson yesterday during your MRI scan. Yeah, which I was just like, because he thought my my name was Boom. I'm like, no, it's well, born. I'm pretty sure that's the French pronunciation yeah. of the word. No, but then Because I, they have a different, a much more stronger dialect and Yeah. Well, he had, a very, he had a very strong accent where he had a hard time saying born. Yeah. So when I was trying to tell him born, and he's like, born, I'm like, yes. He's like, what's born? And I'm like, it's French. And he's like, really? And I'm like, yeah, because if you say in French, it's actually Borne. And he started laughing. And I'm like, what, why is that funny? And he's just like, Borne in French means stubborn. And I'm like, you should, <laughs> and I was like, you should meet my family then because they're all pretty much stubborn. <laughs> and you know I'm sorry. That's just so funny. And you know what? And I actually did crack up about that because I, I'm a, I'm a nice guy. I am. Yeah. But I can be stubborn in certain ways. I would have cackled. And, and I did. I actually I, laughed really hard. I would hard. have cackled. Yeah. I would have been like, "That is so fucking funny," because you've been telling, you've been telling me the whole fucking time throughout our relationship what you thought "born" really meant in French. "Born a" means born, and I'm like. Apparently not. No, apparently not as stubborn. All right. Yep. But continue. After arriving at Harga, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, so bear with me. The group meet Simon and Connie, British outsiders who were invited by Pele's commune brother, Ingmar, who offers everyone psychedelic mushrooms. Danny has a bad trip and hallucinates about her family members. The next day, the group witnesses an Etastupa ritual where two elders commit suicide by jumping from a cliff onto the rocks below. Simon and Connie are deeply disturbed and outraged with the ritual and commune elder Siv attempts to calm them by explaining that in their culture, every member of their community does this at the age of 72 and that is believed to be a great honor. Because in this commune, like they're out in the mountains in the country, so they do a lot of their own agricultural work and farming and raising livestock. So 
their philosophy is, is when you reach the age of 72, that's a time when your body starts to deteriorate and you become too old to do farm work, which makes you a liability, I guess. Mm -hmm. So they think that at 72, this is the honorable way you would release your loved ones from here on. That is their cultural belief. And Simon and Connie were not prepared for that. Apparently, they had to be prepared for that, and Igmar didn't explain that to them. No. Josh knew what that was, what was going to happen. But he didn't want to say anything. Christian and Danny didn't know what happened. And you want to know what, what's really, really fascinating to me, too, in this scene? So, obviously, this bothers Danny because she lost her sister through suicide and... In her suicide attempt, she murdered her parents as well. So this should be a very emotionally triggering moment for Danny. But mm -hmm. she takes it all in and she listens to Siv as she explains why they do this. And she seems to have an understanding of why that is. She comprehends it, even though it yeah. is very like scary mm -hmm. and very didn't know. You know, she wasn't expecting it. Right. But afterwards, she took it in and was like, look, it could be, it is bad, but she understands why they do this. And even Christian, who is not a character I would normally agree with, but he makes a pretty good point. Everybody's cultures are different in how they treat their elders. In America, most of the time, what we do with our elderly when they get to a certain age where they can't care for themselves, we oftentimes put them in nursing homes. Which is a pretty weird way of looking at it if you're that type of person. But I feel like in today's economy, that's really all you can do. Mm -hmm. when, you, when you are too busy supporting yourself and your own family and you can't take care of your elderly loved ones, that's the best you can do. And I got to give Christian that, at least. For once. Mark displays an extreme phobia of ticks, which is based on Ari Aster's real-life fear of bugs and illness. Like Mark, Aster wore two pairs of socks over his jeans to ensure he would not receive bug bites. And the practice of etastupas is essentially a myth. As depicted in the film, the elderly were expected to sacrifice for the good of the village, maintaining efficiency, like I mentioned before. However, the original source of the story is a 13th century Icelandic account in Gautrex. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly again. Bear with me. Mm -hmm. And supposed etastupas in Norway and Scandinavia have all been proven to have only been referred to as such by the 18th or 19th century. Historians with no prior references to any such practices, much like the Icelandic ones. Most serious historians consider the story a reflection of the Icelandic medieval tradition of depicting Swedes as barbarous on account of them converting to Christianity a century later than Iceland. And that's, a, again, that's a whole other history lesson for a whole other time. Mm -hmm. But that is essentially what the Atestupa rituals were about. Later that day... Christian approaches Josh and declared that he too has decided to write his thesis on the Harga Commune. This irritates Josh and he accuses Christian for plagiarizing his idea, which, like I said, causes a defense reaction from Christian, who's trying not to be the bad guy in anybody's life story by saying, well, I want to do this now and this is just what I'm going to do. And I'm sorry if you feel that way, but dude, get your own fucking idea. 
So Danny, who is disturbed by the ceremonies, attempts to leave, but is encouraged by Pele to stay and gifts her a drawing for her birthday. Also, I want to stop here for a minute. Oh, no. When they get to Sweden, it's her birthday. Her and Christian have been together for four years. And he and forgot. And he forgot that that was her birthday. Yeah. And Pele has to be the one to tell him, hey, just so you know, I don't know if you remembered, but today is Danny's birthday. You know, your girlfriend of four years. Connie and uh, Simon ask him how long have they been together. He said three and a half. They, she said four. Yeah. In two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, really? Yeah. Three, wait, four years? No way. Yeah, which again, it's like, if you're not going to even be that committed to the relationship to the point where you don't even remember how long you've been together, much less her birthday, then you don't deserve to be in this relationship, my guy. I remember proposing to you on April 29th at like 10.30 p.m. at night. Right. In front of the place that we met. Not in front of, in the place that we met. In the place that we met. That's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. And literally, I know that. If I don't know that, then I feel like this relationship is totally not worth it. If I didn't know that part. Well, you also haven't given me a new ring since our wedding day two years ago. Do you really have to dish that out there? I haven't worn my wedding ring in two years. Continue the story. Backstory. Like Colin said, he proposed to me on April 29th of 2017. I had worn my engagement ring that came in like an engagement ring wedding band set. I wore my engagement ring every single day from the time we got engaged to up until my wedding day. And the day after we got married, I could not take it off because the ring had warped over time and the shape made it hard for me to take it off. Well, that's why we're going to upgrade your ring. I want to upgrade my ring, but I have not worn my wedding band since. And now I can't even tell, like, I used to wear it so much that there used to be, like, an imprint line around my ring finger. Now it's not there anymore. Yeah, now it's faded out over time. Got a vein right there. Yeah, my finger. We're not talking about veins. We're talking about rings. I know, but I saw this. I was just like, that looks like a, that was weird. Yeah, I'm I'm veining in my hands. Leave me alone. Anyway. Not really, but yeah. So. Go on. Pele explains that he too was orphaned after his parents perished in a fire and the commune became his new family. Connie and Simon are supposedly driven to a nearby train station individually after the group notices their absence, which I think is very interesting because this cult focuses solely on human emotions and yet they use emotional and mental or psychological manipulation to convince people or essentially gaslight them into believing certain things. Like in this instance, after the Etastupa ritual, Simon and Connie want to leave. And Connie gets her shit. She's packing up. She's just looking for Simon. Ingmar tells her, Simon left already with Ulf to the train station. And she's like, well, why would he leave me here? And even Danny's like, why would Simon just leave his fiance here and go to the train station. They they had a horrible lie. And they yeah, they come up with all these like weird fucking lies, like, oh the truck can only fit two people and she's like, Well, I could have ridden in the truck bed. Oh well it's you know, we don't wanna risk drawing attention to ourselves from the police. Okay, then I could have sat on his lap and he's like, Again, we don't wanna like it's a whole thing. But then Connie disappears and Mark mentions something about seeing her running through the woods and then screaming later comes up throughout the movie. 
And people, uh, again, the, the commune members are saying, oh, well, Connie was taken to the train station as well. Shortly after, I think Ingmar came back and picked her up. Oh, God. And she's like, that doesn't make any Danny's like, it still doesn't make sense that Simon would just leave Connie like that. Yeah. And then Christian, in a, like a ballsy fucking way, is like, oh, it's just a common case of miscommunication. Like... Dude, what the fuck have you been doing? You know what's funny? She, she, and that's why Danny said you would leave me. No, she's sense. like, I could see you doing that. Yeah. And he's like, what the fuck does that mean? Yeah. Again, he doesn't yeah. like to be perceived as a bad guy because he's a narcissist. Well, he is a fucking bad guy and he needs to get fucking used to it. Right. Christian conducts research for his paper by asking some of the locals questions. He is told that outsiders are sometimes brought to the commune for mating purposes to avoid incest. After Mark unknowingly urinates on a sacred tree, oh, he is God. lured away by one of the female commune members and murdered in the woods. Now, we don't see Mark's death on screen, but it's implied. Josh is shown pages of the Ruby Radar, the commune sacred text written by Reuben, a child of incestuous breeding. And they believe that because Reuben is a child of incestuous breeding, it is clouds his mind from any outside influences that allows the holy channels to tell him what to write in these sacred texts. And they're really just a bunch of scribbles. I'm sorry, but they're just a bunch of scribbles. But they all indicate different ranges of emotions, which again is what the commune emphasizes on. That night, Josh sneaks out of bed to take pictures of the ruby rudder. He is caught and distracted by Ulf, who is wearing Mark's skinned face. Josh is then bludgeoned to death with a mallet and dragged away. The following day, both Danny and Christian are separately pressured into taking hallucinogenic tea for midsummer festivities. Danny participates and wins a maypole dancing competition and is crowned the May Queen. In the movie, they use the word May Queen and maypole. This is misleading as midsummer is celebrated by the end of June. The Swedish word Maya, in this case, originally means to decorate with leaves. Maya is the same name of the red-headed girl who tries to seduce Christian to fuck her. Or to have sex with her, I should say. I shouldn't use that word, but... I say fuck. I can use the word fuck to emphasize the sentence, but essentially she's trying to get Christian to have sex with her so mm. she can get pregnant. Mm. Like like we talked about earlier. Or, say, or you could say CX. But that's why they bring outsiders in originally to mate with the women so they don't have like incestuous breeding issues. But that's, again, neither here nor there. Christian is drugged and is lured to participate in a sex ritual with Maya, a young member of the Harga, while older nude female members watch and mimic Maya's moans. Danny witnesses the ritual and has a panic attack while the commune's women surround her, mimicking her cries of sorrow. After the ritual, a nude Christian flees the cabin and discovers Josh's severed leg planted in a flower bed and Simon's corpse on display in a barn, the latter having been made into a blood eagle. An elder then paralyzes Christian with a drug. I taught you a bit about blood eagles recently. Yes, you did, because um, cause it was a uh, Viking tradition. It's a method of torture mm-hmm. conducted by the Vikings, or inve- essentially invented by the Vikings. Which that's kind of amazing. And it's, it's intriguing in a way because, A, it requires the victim to have their 
back ribs pried open from the spinal cord mm. that allows the torturer to pull the lungs outside of the body in a way that still allows the victim to be able to breathe, which is what we do see in this movie because Simon is suspended in air. His back is pried open. His lungs are like pulled up from the back. And you can see the lungs expand and contract, meaning that he is still breathing. He's still alive somewhat. Somewhat. It's it's an excruciatingly painful process. And it's incredibly fucked. It is fucked. But again, the Vikings invented it. Just so you know. <laughs> and also, by the way, there's a whole discourse about this sex ritual. Because Christian is given, a, like, he's given a couple of these teas. That I feel are a aphrodisiac that enhance his sexual performance. And since he is lured into this like cabin essentially to disrobe and approach Maya and to have sex with her. And he's surrounded by these women. Yeah, he could have pulled away and probably tried to run away. But at the end of the day, he was still coerced. To have sex with this girl. And that in of itself is essentially rape. Especially if he did not verbally consent to this. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like that Again, there's a whole discourse surrounding it. But I just wanted to touch on that a bit. Because that, like, that's something that a lot of people had a problem with with this movie. For the final ceremony, the commune members reveal that Harga members must offer nine human sacrifices to purge it of evil. The first four victims are Mark, Josh, Simon, and Connie, who were the outsiders lured in by Pele and Ingmar, while the next four victims, the other two Etestupa elders, plus volunteers Ingmar and Ulf, are from the commune. As the May Queen, Danny must choose between Christian or a randomly selected Harga member as the final sacrifice. She chooses Christian who is then stuffed into a disemboweled brown bear body and placed in a yellow triangle-shaped wooden temple alongside the other sacrifices. The commune members to be sacrificed are given drugs and are told they will feel no fear or pain. I don't think this is totally true. Mm-hmm. I don't think they really can move, honestly. I think that's the kind of drug that they gave them. Krishna is still paralyzed as the structure is set alight. And the commune members mimic the screams of those being burned alive. Danny begins sobbing in horror and grief, but eventually begins to smile. Now, I kind of wanted to touch up about, on a couple of things before we get to the final fun fact, and then we close up. So the thing about Danny, when we watch her progress through this journey, through the midsummer festivities, the more she interacts or observes them, the more she starts to become immersed into the culture. Like, especially during the May Queen dance competition, she drinks the tea, she dresses in the garments, she wears the flower crowns, she dances, she's having a good time, she's laughing and embracing this sort of sisterhood bond with the other women. And during the dancing competition, she begins to speak in Swedish, meaning that she's now understanding and speaking the language. Which, that part freaked me the fuck out. It is weird. Yeah. It is weird, especially like I said, for somebody who's never been to Sweden or probably hasn't studied or Swedish or talked the language. Right. It's it's very weird that she quickly adapted to that within a span of like what three or four days. I blame the drink. The drink, I think, probably did it. But 
she becomes more immersed. And after she wins the May Queen competition, the people in the commune fully accept her as one of their own, mm -hmm. which is very strange. Yeah. Another thing, too, that I thought was kind of... I, these are the things that I liked about it. I did want to go through those. Because as much as some parts of this movie really frustrated the crap out of me, there were things about it that I thought were really interesting. I liked... Again, the emotional performances brought on by Florence Pugh. I always think Florence Pugh and everything she does, she brings a lot of emotion to her performances. And I think that's what makes her the perfect actress for this role. I love the hallucination scenes. Like I said, when they first get there, they take mushrooms. Even though Danny doesn't want to, she takes it. And she has these hallucinogenic moments where she sees grass growing out of her hand. And she sees images of her deceased family members. Yeah, and, especially in the group of people. And, like, yeah, like, after, like I said, after she wins the May Queen competition, she's pushed through a crowd of the commune members who are all embracing her and congratulating her on the competition. And in passing, she sees her sister, her mom, and her dad. And it, she wants to, like, react, but that's when Pele comes up and kisses her. And she show, she's so shocked by his kissing her that she almost forgets that she's like what did just happen to me? right it's like it's exactly it's like a what just happened moment and then she's put onto a platform that they lift up and then they carry her over to the dining table where they have one more meal before she goes and blesses the crops and the livestock which again is another part of the festivities but in the trees the trees start to take shape in the form of her sister's face from the night that she died. Oh, with the hose taped to her mouth. Which, I still need to see that because I never got to see that in the movie. I feel, I think we might have to rewatch it just so you, you can see that part. I didn't even notice it. A lot of people I mean, kept I, saying that that happened. I can, I can find a picture of it online, which is fine. Or you can rewatch the Midsummer Kill Count. I'm pretty sure they highlighted it on there too. Maybe, but yeah. But I think those are pretty interesting I like the authenticity that's implied. And that's the thing about me, too. Whenever certain cultural aspects are applied to movies, I always want to see how authentic the movie makers go to make the movie, like, genuinely authentic. Like, in the movie Prey, I can't remember the director of costume design, but she won the, was it the Chainsaw Awards from Shutter Fangoria? I think so, yeah. It's yeah, Fangoria. she she won an award for her costume design in the movie Prey. But she worked closely along indigenous community members mm -hmm. to reach as much authenticity into her costumes as possible. And I applaud movie makers who go that far. So I got to give Ari Aster kudos for the authenticity for the hallucination scenes. I think the use of color is also very interesting. Because even in the scene where Danny calls her parents. And the shot of their house at dark. Like it's dark inside. All the lights are turned off. You get the glow of the street lights coming in from the windows. But you can obviously tell that there's like a lot of yellow color. Okay so I give Ari Aster that. I give his, his level for authenticity. The hallucination scenes are pretty creative. I like the artistic concept behind it all, and I love the use of color. Those are the things I will give Ari Aster on when it comes to this movie. I don't think the ending was that great because, it, again, as much as I would like to think that Christian got what he deserved 
He represented something that was pretty important, I think. When all is said and done, Josh is dead, Mark is dead, Connie and Simon are dead. By killing off Christian, they killed off the last connection that Danny has with anybody outside of the commune. Nobody knows where she is now because this was such a last minute, spur of the moment trip for her that nobody knows where she is. Her friend probably doesn't even know where she is. The one from the phone call? Yeah, I don't even earlier. know if she still exists. Right. She probably doesn't even know where she is. Mm. And she has no family who's concerned about her. So now she's essentially stuck there. And I feel like it... What if the sequel is the friend going to find her? And then her getting trapped in the fucking Midsummer events too? And then I... they'd be best friends forever. And ever. And ever. And ever. And ever. Okay, let's stop that. And ever. <laughs> okay, let's stop that. Anyway, okay. so that's how I felt about the movie. Is there anything you wanted to talk about before we wrapped up? Mm. Stop. Well... Probably seeing this for like 4,000 times and then probably reviewing this like six times. I will say that this movie is definitely, definitely one of my favorites. Okay. Because, like I said before, it definitely adds that, that compelling spiritualness of like folk horror. Mm-hmm. And like everyday realistic relationships that come to show that they're not always the best. And sometimes it takes uh, a nine-day festival or uh, midsummer to kind of take those relationships and, you know, turn them upside down mm-hmm. and show what the real, you know, what is what it is all about. Right. You know? And Danny, you know, whether she finds a family or she finds closure or relief or something... You know, it just kind of, it's a weird ending. It really is to this movie. This movie's already fucking weird to begin with, but mm-hmm. the ending is like, I wouldn't say relief for her, but it's definitely, it's something new that she, that's in her life. She doesn't know how to take it, but I think that's why she did that smile because she didn't know what to do. I mean, I agree in a way. I almost want to say that. With everything she went through in this movie, there's probably a consent, there's a sense of catharticism when it comes to all of the emotional turmoil she went through. I don't want to say she went through all of the stages of grief, but she probably did go through many stages of grief. She went through a lot, not yeah. just grief. She went through every emotion that there is. Yeah, and in some cases she went through those things either by herself or with the support of the commune members. Because she clearly didn't get much support from Christian. Or her his friends. Or, yeah, or any of his friends. Except for Pele. Pele is the only one, really. He really cared about her. He right. That's why he's the heart. He's the one that Christian should have been like. He also gets a bit of a communal promotion for having brought the May Queen to them. Yeah, actually, he should get a big promotion. Well, he did. He got a big, poofy, green flower crown. Not only that, probably a lot of money, too. No, probably not money. Uh, do they not Speaking, have money in that com- in that community? I don't think they do. But there is something about flower crowns I wanted to touch up upon before we did wrap up. So Ariana Grande is a fan of the film, calling it one of her favorite films of 2019. She tried and failed to buy the May Queen gown used in the film at an auction. She also threw <laughs> a midsummer themed birthday party for herself on her 27th birthday. 
Florence Pugh appeared in two different 2019 movies in which her character wears a flower crown in significant scenes. As Amy March in Little Women, she and other characters wore them during Meg's wedding. And as Danny Arter in Midsummer, she and multiple characters wore them in ritual contexts. The main movie poster, an emblematic image for Midsummer, depicts Pugh in extreme close-up wearing a flower crown and crying. Flower crowns were in fact one of the major bridal trends of 2019. A June 2019 April Hardwick New York Post article on the subject was titled, Blooming Brides Get Creative with Floral Crowns. We've been to quite a few weddings this year. There's one that comes to mind that had flower crowns in them. And I wasn't really so much as off-put as much as I was slightly concerned. I feel like that has been our review on Midsommar. <laughs> I'm not doing another review of this movie again. You sound... Man, you look like right now you're breathing so hard after all this. Because you were... You ranted. <laughs> I ranted. Yeah. I ranted, which I didn't really want to do. And when this happens, she gets super tired. But I stuck to the script for the most part and I did it I feel like I did a good job and you did I'm proud of you yeah I just don't want to ever review this movie again anytime somebody asks me how I feel about Midsommar I'm just going to recommend them this episode I'm going to drop kick one of my friends and then get you out of the room and be like honey we gotta go I'd be like how do you feel about Midsommar and I'm like this in the corner of the room I'm like you shut the fuck up before she says something there was another movie that we watched recently that kind of made me... Like, remember how we talked about plot points in movies? What movie are you Or plot talking, holes? What movie are you talking about? Don't worry, darling. God damn it. Another Florence Pugh movie? I love Florence Pugh. But I, know, I, the, do I don't want to talk about that movie. Yeah, yeah don't talk about but it. But there's, there's a plot hole in that movie that I would love to do a deep dive of. But I don't want to do it because it's a struck movie and I don't want to cover it right now. Yeah, but anyway. Um yeah. But yeah, it's got a similar plot hole where it's like, you know, if one of these characters had just done this, we wouldn't have a movie right now like of this happening. Mm-hmm. It's just it's a very weird fucking thing to think about, especially with this one where it's like you didn't have to be in this relationship. Like you you two didn't have to be together. You could have said no. You didn't need to stay with her when after she lost her family. Like this is why no means no is a thing. Well, also too, like that again, that whole conversation in the beginning. Like it's not just the conversation that she has with him over the phone. It's the conversation after she finds out he's going to Sweden, and she keeps saying like I'm not mad. She's not so much mad that he didn't invite her as she was about him not telling her that she was going that he was going away for a month and a half to Sweden you know mhm but yeah i feel like there's there's certain parts of this movie that give me headaches but there's some parts about it that i could appreciate yeah and yeah. You want to sign off? Yes, I do. All right, I want to go to bed. All right. So, this has been a good episode of the Heavy Normal podcast. This was definitely an interesting one. Mm-hmm. But thank you all for listening and tune in to next week's episode. We don't know what we're discussing yet, but then again, we don't want to tell you because it'd be a lot more exciting that way. Mm-hmm. So anyway, this has been an episode of the Abbey Normal Podcast. I'm your host Colin and I'm Leah. Signing off saying good night. And don't wear flower hats.
As always, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We are currently on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. Be sure to give us a like, subscribe, or a nice review for our podcast. It helps boost our show positively. You can also follow us on Instagram and now on TikTok.